So this is our 19th lesson in our Old Testament series, Introduction to Leviticus. So let's set the scene, because as we've talked about before, Genesis is a great read. There's a lot of things going on there. It's a story that we can follow. The first part of Exodus, obviously a lot of excitement, a lot of action going on there between uh, Moses and Pharaoh, and then uh, leading up to the Passover. Then Israel finally exited Egypt, went into the wilderness, and they've gathered at Mount Sinai. And from you know about the middle part of um, Exodus, we've been sitting at the foot of this mountain talking to God about laws. And that's how we took that section in Leviticus, starting in chapter 20, uh, with the Ten Commandments and the giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, then we had uh, you know, four or five chapters in the middle of Exodus that kind of talk about some of the laws that God gave. Uh, then we went through uh, the last 15 chapters of Exodus talking about the tabernacle. And that's what we gave an overview of the tabernacle. So it seems that the story has kind of slowed by the time you get to you know, Exodus 19 and 20. But one thing that we need to remember, we're still in the narrative. We're still in the story. And even though Leviticus is a book of laws, you know, and it reads as ancient law codes, and there's a lot of details. You know, there's a lot of details with the tabernacle. There's a lot of details about how to kill a bull and a goat, you know, here in Leviticus. And uh, so even though it is a book of laws and it is an ancient law code, it's still part of the, the narrative. So kind of setting the scene here, the first uh, topic on our paper um, to set the scene, we're going to look at three verses, and I put these three verses on our paper. And it's the ending of Exodus, the beginning of Leviticus, and then the beginning of Numbers. And it'll show us something important about the importance of this book of Leviticus, you know, because we could easily, and many Christians do, and, you know, I have from time to time just dismissed this as, you know, old covenant law, just dis dismissed this as outdated, dismissed this as, you know, this isn't, you know, for Christians today. But putting it right here where it needs to be will show us the importance of it in our narrative story as it relates to even our spiritual foundation uh, coming from the Old Testament in the nation of Israel, how God made covenant and he's working out his covenant. So this is how and why Leviticus fits in the story. In Exodus chapter 40, at the end of Exodus, you know, they've God gave instructions on building the temple. Moses gave instructions to the people on building the temple. Then the people, or I mean the tabernacle. Then the people built the tabernacle. At the end of Exodus in chapter 40, God's presence inhabits the tabernacle. And now God dwells and lives among his people. But we find this verse at the end of Exodus, chapter 40, verse number 35, that says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because of the cloud that was settled on it, because of God's presence. Now, God's presence has come to the tabernacle. It's filled the holy place, but Moses was not able to enter into it. And this is called the Tent of Meeting. That's one of the names for the tabernacle, the Tent of Meeting. Obviously a tent where you meet with God. Well, Moses was not able to go in. So when we get to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, the first verse says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the Tent of Meeting. That's a very important word. 
You remember God previously spoke to Moses on, uh, from the mountain. God called Moses up onto the mountain. He met with Moses on the mountain. Now God's presence has moved from the mountain to the tabernacle, but he speaks with Moses from the tent of meeting. There's still separation between God and Moses. When you go to Numbers chapter 1, Numbers chapter 1 verse 1 says this, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, catch this word, in the tent of meeting. So from Leviticus 1 to Numbers 1, Moses moves from hearing God from the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, to in the tent of meeting. So how do people get, how does Israel specifically in context, get separated from God, but are now able to come into God's presence? Because God is so holy, we've already seen how holy He is. We've already seen how fearful His presence has been presented to the Israelites. So they already are approaching Him with fear and trembling. But the tabernacle's there, God dwells, but there's still a concept of distance. So how do you get from distance to closeness? How do you get from God speaking from the tent of meeting to speaking with God in the tent of meeting? Well, the way you do that is through Leviticus. How did Moses go from from the tabernacle to in the tabernacle? What happened? Leviticus happened. Leviticus provides a way for Israel's sin to be atoned for that they could approach and be accepted by God. So that's what that's why this book is important to Israel and to the narrative of the story is because it prevent it presents a way that God's people can be accepted by God. It's how to bridge the gap between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man to bring sinful man to a place of holiness to be met with, uh, with where they can meet with God. So that's how the scene is set. That's how the scene is set. Um, about the book itself, um, the book was compiled for the instruction of the congregation and the priests uh, in matters pertaining to worship. And worship in this instance is work, worship by sacrifice. Worship by sacrifice. You know, that's one of the questions a lot of people ask is, why does God need sacrifice? Uh, you know, why does God require the death of animals to, to atone? Uh, and we'll talk more about that when we get into Next week, the sacrifices and the Day of Atonement. But that's a question to, to be pondering. Um, ultimately, we answer that from the New Testament by this was not God's ultimate plan. God did not ultimately desire animals and sacrifices. But it's part of the progression. It's part of the revelation. As we saw at the beginning, the Old Testament is a progression and a revelation of redemption going throughout history leading up to what God really did, and that is sending His Son Jesus to provide atonement, to do what these sacrifices could not do. So this isn't the final revelation. This is where we begin because it's the ancient world that is being presented. You know, animal sacrifice was obviously not unique to Israel, been going on a long time. Uh, before Israel, uh, ancient law codes are certainly nothing new 
to the Old Testament, but what we find in the Hebrew Bible is we find the distinctiveness that God puts His people in as they're worshiping Yahweh in a world surrounded by other nations that are worshiping their pagan gods and their pagan deities. And it's to show how God's people are different, even though you know, other nations are involved in sacrifice, even though they're involved in what they can't eat and what they can't eat. It's showing how God's people serving Yahweh are distinct from the other nations and how they're different. And it's ultimately to uh, present them as holy, a, a holy people and how uh, God is holy. So that's what makes this book so interesting and to answer some of those questions about sacrifice. We'll get into more detail uh, next week as we talk about uh, sacrifices specifically. But this book pertains to matters of worship. And it gives correct procedures for making sacrifices in the tabernacle, which is presented as sacred space, uh, for it, correct procedures for observing the high times in the calendar or the high holy days. And those are the sacred times, the sacred festivals. And it presents correct procedures pertaining to living as a holy people. So, the three matters we're dealing with is sacred space, being how to worship in the tabernacle, sacred times, the calendar, the festivals of God, the days of God, and then sacred status as God's people, pertaining to them uh, and their morals uh, and how they present themselves to God and to one another. So those are the three major areas that the book of Leviticus talks about. Uh, what to do in the tabernacle with worship, uh, how to celebrate these feast days, and then how to be a holy people unto God, uh, which included in the tabernacle and the holy people are the priesthood themselves. So in a general sense, Leviticus speaks of the concept of holiness, the holiness of God, and the need for atoning sacrifice for sin. That in turn provides the conceptual framework for understanding the atoning work of Jesus. So ultimately, we understand that these uh, sacrifices are pictures and foreshadowings of the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Uh, the name of the book of Leviticus, uh, like other books in the Pentateuch, we get that from the Greek translation of the Bible. Uh, so the Greek Leviticus means pertaining to Levi, which is the priestly tribe of Israel. Uh, the Hebrew title um, are the war, is the, taken from the first verse of the Bible, and he called. So there's a different Hebrew title in Hebrew than there is in, in Greek, obviously. Uh, but it's taken from the first words here in the book, the Lord called, and he called Moses. Um, though the book of Leviticus is a book of ancient laws, it's set within the context of the larger narrative, as we've seen above. It's the continuation of what proceeds at the end of Exodus and continues into Numbers. Uh, at the end of Exodus, God's presence enters the tabernacle on the first day of the first month, Nisan, and Numbers begins on the first day of the second month. So the time frame that's taken up in the book of Leviticus is one month. Uh, we move from Exodus to uh, Numbers, so Leviticus takes place in the matter of one month here. Again, the key theme is holiness. That's the key theme. That's why this book is presented. Again, taking people from separated from God, 
being able to enter into God's presence from being separated to being welcomed or accepted into God's presence. And they did this by God telling His people, you need to be holy. So there's two verses that sum this up in Exodus or Leviticus chapter 19, verse number 2, where God says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Then in Leviticus 20, 26, You are to be holy to me, because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. So holiness as a concept involves being set apart. Uh, the furniture in the tabernacle was holy because it was set apart for God's service. God's people were to be holy because they were set apart from the other nations to represent Yahweh to the other nations. Uh, these uh, holy days and feast days are holy because these are days and times that are set apart for a certain purpose unto God. So that's what holiness really is. It's being set apart, is being set to the side for a specific use. And that use here in Scripture is as God's people or to be used by God. So holiness is really what you're set apart to. You're set apart to God. And um, it's because God is holy, He expected His people to be holy. That is, they were set apart from the other nations through the covenant as God's special possession. So they were to be holy. They were to maintain moral and ritual purity out of respect for God's holiness. Holiness was conveyed by righteous laws, sacrifices, and the purity system that helped Israel be uniquely dedicated to God. So all of this that they do was to show that they are solely with their whole heart dedicated unto God. And of course, violation of God's holiness and the holiness codes uh, can be met with severe punishment, as we see several times here. Now, the main difference, and I'll go ahead and address this. This might be an issue I wanted to talk about later, but we'll just go ahead and throw it out there now. You know, well, if... People, if we as Christians today would say, well, if Leviticus, God wanted his people to be holy and this is how they were holy, then shouldn't we do the same things that they did then? And we try to make that same, um, you know, equality between new covenant Christians and, you know, old covenant Israel. And the main difference that I see is in the Old Testament under the law, was centered upon external holiness. Centered upon what you did, what you wore, what you did on certain days externally. The main difference in the shift from the old covenant to the new covenant is what God wanted to accomplish in the new covenant was an internal holiness. An internal holiness. So it's not about the, the outward aspects. That's still what the Pharisees wanted to accomplish. Externally, they still did as the law said to do, but internally, they were wicked. So while the law addresses behavioral issues, while the law addresses external issues, 
the new covenant, the Spirit of God, again, takes the Spirit of the law and puts it in us so that holiness now is an internal thing. And sanctification is an internal thing, which will ultimately affect how we live our lives as we're walking with the Spirit, but not pertaining to an outer law code, an ancient law code that we find here. So just throwing that out there as we'll get more in detail, I'm sure, when, you know, when that comes up later. But that's the main issues there. Holiness here is external holiness to make you acceptable to God. Well, through Christ, we've already been made acceptable to God. We are accepted in the Beloved because Christ fulfilled the law. So it's not us having to fulfill the law or fulfill certain performances or rituals or duties to be accepted by God. We're accepted by God because Christ fulfilled the law, because Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. So as New Covenant believers, we are already put... I said I was going to talk about this later. I'm going to talk about it now. But as New Covenant Christians, we are already put in the category of holy. Why? Because we are in Christ. In Christ, there is nothing unholy. We are in Christ. We have been cleansed and washed by His blood. We have been set apart and sanctified by Jesus Christ. So what they're trying to achieve by their own keeping of the law, we achieve because Christ kept the law and fulfilled the law. And then He puts His Spirit in us to transform us to work out His will that we externally, from the inside out, begin to live in a way that is pleasing to God and in a way that the world will see our lives and our witness, not because of our external performances, but because of who we are, how we love, how we treat people, how we forgive, the hope we have, the joy we have, the peace we have. All of that is formed internally. So, yes, these are the differences. So, you know, going back and saying, well, you know, if we're supposed to be God's holy people, we need to keep all of these things, you know, first of all, takes away the importance of Christ's sacrifice, because Christ kept the law so that we could be brought to God. He makes us accepted. He presents us before God as cleansed, covered by His blood, and righteous in His sight. So, keep that in mind as your as you're reading that. Okay, I just had to get that out. Let's look at our outline of Leviticus. Our outline of Leviticus. Um, The interesting thing about the outline here, and I've got it color-coded on our papers. For if you notice, chapters 1 through 7 is in green. Chapters 23 through 25 are also in green. That's because chapters 1 through 7 and 23 through 25, with the exception of chapter 24, chapter 24 is kind of stuck in the middle between 23 and 25. Um, But to keep the nice color-coded chart, we'll just put a note out beside that. Both of these have to do with rituals. Both of those have to do with the rituals. The rituals of sacrifice, how to offer sacrifice, and then the rituals of the holy days, the feast days of the God, of God. There are seven major feast days and then some other days. We'll look at all of those in a moment. But So chapters 1 through 7 correspond with chapters 23 through 25, so they're both in green. Uh, the next chapters 8 through 10 are highlighted in blue, and chapters 21 and 22 are highlighted in blue. 
And these are highlighted in blue because both sections have to do with the priests and the priesthood. So in chapters 8 through 10, we find the ordination of priests, how, when the priests were ordained. And chapters 21 through 22 are the qualifications of priests. So green has to do with rituals. Blue has to do with ordination of priests. Then chapters 11 through 15, which are outlined in or highlighted in yellow, and chapters 18 through 20, which are highlighted in yellow, are both laws about purity. Both laws about purity. Uh, chapters 11 through 15 are laws about ritual purity, about what is clean and unclean. Uh, we'll talk about those. And, and we're going to take all these sections, we're going to talk about these. So next week we'll talk about rituals. The next week we'll probably talk about priests. The next week we'll talk about purities. Um, but ritual purity was like what is clean and unclean. If, if you touch a dead body, you become unclean. Now that does not mean you become sinful. It just means that you've become unclean and there's a remedy. And after a few days or whatever, you know, after not going into to town or, you know, being around other people, you know, after a few days you wash, you become clean. So th those things aren't sinful things. It's just, you know, if you touch bodily fluids, if you touch dead bodies, if you touch this, you just become unclean and you have to wash, become ceremonial clean, wait however many days, and then, bam, you're back clean again. So that's a ritual purity. Then chapters 18 through 20 are moral purity. These are things that are sinful as far as uh, morally what people do that is um, against God's law. So, uh, and those are met with much more severe punishment uh, because that does pertain to sin versus, versus just doing something that makes you unclean. But both of them are about purity. So, And then right in the middle here in chapters 16 and 17 is, chapter 16 is, speaks of the Day of Atonement. And this is kind of like the centerpiece of all of this. So you've got individual sins, you've got individuals who are unclean, you've got you know, how you make you know, individual sacrifices. And, but the Day of Atonement concerned you know, the whole nation. Uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement, when the sins of the nation would be atoned for by the high priest. And then chapter 17 gives other laws pertaining to uh, sacrificing there. So you see how these kind of correspond a little bit. So we're going to kind of take them topically. We're going to introduce these today, but then take them uh, topically and dig into them. Uh, then you end with chapters 26 and 27, and that's uh, a call to covenant faithfulness uh, pertaining to obedience and vows. So just you can see the neat little outline that, that we have here. So let's break down uh, these five sections as an overview, and then this is what we'll dig into uh, in the weeks to come. First of all, the rituals that are sacrifices. There are five major types of sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. The first two that we have listed here is the grain offering and a peace offering. Uh, the grain offering is found in Leviticus 2. The peace offering is found in Leviticus 3. These two offerings are ways of saying thank you to God. So when you want to say thank you to God, when you want to give a free will offering of thanks and praise to God, you bring a grain offering or you bring a peace offering. Uh, and this is uh, saying thank you to God by giving back a part of what He's given to the Israelites in produce and flocks. Uh, these are a sweet savor offerings, and they were voluntary. They were issued out of 
uh, your own free will. Then the next offerings, 3, 4, and 5, is the burnt offering in Leviticus 1. The sin offering, the offering for a sin that you have done in Leviticus 4 and 5. And then a guilt or trespass offering in Leviticus 5 and 6. Uh, Opposite of the first two, these are different ways of saying, I'm sorry to God. So when you have sinned and you you repent of that sin, you offer a sacrifice for atonement of that sin, one of these offerings is how you do that. Uh, When you're saying, I'm sorry to God for wrongs done to others or to God, which results in forgiveness of sin. Uh, The three I'm sorry offerings are all said to provide atonement for the sin of the one who offers it so that they are forgiven. These would be non-sweet savor offerings, and they were required. Uh, They were involuntary. You had to do them when you sinned in order to get your sin atoned for and to receive forgiveness. So next week we're going to break down what all five of these offerings consist of. Uh, The next ritual is the calendar, uh, the holy days. Israel was to keep a full calendar of sacred days, all of which were designed to help Israel remember who they are and who their God is. So uh, the first one here is Passover. uh, And of course, the Feast of Passover retells the story of the 10th plague and God's redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Along with Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And if you remember when we read Exodus, God told them, you know, you are to keep the Passover as a memorial. You are to keep uh, the festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Unleavened Bread is retelling the story of the last night in Egypt and the haste with which they left Egypt where they were to get rid of all the leaven in their house and then be ready uh, to leave. Uh, The third one is the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, The Feast of Pentecost happens 50 days after Passover, and it's another offering of the late spring harvest. A lot of these festivals revolve around harvest time and, you know, bringing in the crops and the first fruits and things of that nature. Uh, Number four is Tabernacles. Tabernacles retells the story of Israel's sojourning in the wilderness and God's provision for them of how they lived in tents in the wilderness, and Tabernacles was a remembrance of that. Number five is first fruits. First fruits is the retelling, uh, the story of God's gift of the promised land and its abundance by offering the first bits of the spring harvest. Uh, then the day of atonement, the annual fast of repentance, as the priest accomplished atonement for Israel's sin, and the feast of trumpets, marked the first day of the seventh month, beginning the final three feasts of the year, began with a ten-day preparation for the next two feasts. So these are the seven major feast days. Out of those, there are three feasts, the Feast of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, where later on, uh, all the Jews would come to Jerusalem, uh, make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate those three major feasts. So those are your seven. Uh, On the back of that page, uh, we have three other holy times that Leviticus talks about. First of all is the weekly Sabbath. Uh, We've Talked about the Sabbath several times in Genesis and then in, in Exodus. The weekly Sabbath, Leviticus 23, 1 through 3, six days shall work be done, but on the seventh is a Sabbath of rest. And then there is a Sabbath year found in Leviticus 25, that every seven years there was to be no farming in the fields and the land was to rest in the Sabbath year. Then there's the year of Jubilee found in Leviticus 25. Every 49 years, all debts were canceled, 
and any family land lost because of bankruptcy, your debt is to be returned to the original owners. It was a year of jubilee. So we'll talk more about those later. So those are the calendar rituals, the days that they were supposed to keep that were holy days. So that's our first section when we talk about rituals, sacrifice and holy days. The next section uh, has to do with priests, the ordination and the qualification of priests. Uh, The people of Israel as a whole had demonstrated their own failure to keep covenant with Yahweh, and so they need a mediator between God and themselves, someone to represent them before God. And God called the family of Aaron, Moses' brother, to carry on this role after Moses, a special group of people uh, who would enter God's presence on behalf of Israel, and which would be from the tribe of Levi, uh, which we get the word Leviticus from, and the Levitical priesthood. So it was this special tribe, these special people, who would be God's priest. In Leviticus 8 through 10, Aaron and his sons are ordained as Israel's mediators who will enter God's presence on their behalf in an elaborate ceremony that marked them as holy. There's also a story of two priests who violate God's holiness and are destroyed by it. So even though the majority of Leviticus is laws and law codes, we do have a few sections in there that are narrative. Nadab and Abihu, uh, the blasphemer who's taken out and stoned. Uh, so there are little bits and pieces of narrative that we find in there, but for the most part, law codes. Um, a haunting tale reminding us of the seriousness of the problem caused by Israel's sin in the presence of God's holiness. You don't mess with God's holiness. You don't fool with God's holiness uh, in the Old Testament, especially here in Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus 21 and 22 are the qualifications for being a priest, which involve a much higher degree of moral integrity and holiness. Uh, kind of like the way uh, the assistance to an important governing official are called as a unique kind of lifestyle, appropriate to the role of service. So the priests are separated, lifted up above the people uh, by giving a different set, a higher set of qualifications. Uh, then we move into the purity section. The purity section are ritual and moral purity. Because Israel lived near God's holiness, they were to reflect God's own holiness and purity to the nations around them. So again, the two types of purity are ritual purity and moral purity. Uh, in ritual purity, these are symbolic practices that reminded Israel that every part of their life was lived in God's holy presence. God is the author of life. Therefore, any contact with things connected to death, and that's kind of the division there in the ritual purity is you come in contact with things that pertain to death, like uh, dead bodies, skin diseases, blood, bodily fluids. Uh, All of these things, if you come in contact with, if you touch them, it renders a person impure. And if you're impure, then you cannot enter into God's holy presence. Uh, so, again, being impure is, was not a sin here. Uh, you simply have to wait a few days, take a bath before being pronounced pure again, and then you can go about on with life. And then on the other end of the ritual purity is the moral purity. Israel was called to a level of moral holiness that corresponds to God's own goodness and set them apart from other nations. These areas of moral integrity focus on uh, sexual integrity, social justice, uh, and right relationships within the family and community. Their moral lives were to correspond to God's moral goodness. Uh, so it's in that moral 
purity part of Leviticus here where we get uh, a lot of questions come from. You know, can I get tattoos? You know, that's where the big uh, homosexuality question is. And that's where, you know, you can't eat certain types. You can't eat shellfish. You can't wear blended fabrics. You know, so there's a lot of stuff there that will answer along the way that, you know, people have questions about today. You know, what is right? What is wrong? Is this our standard? Uh, how does any of this relate today? Uh, so that's where a lot of your issues there come in, moral purity. And then finally, the centerpiece that we looked at in our outline was the Day of Atonement, which is obviously the, the biggest feast here for the nation, the biggest day here, the most holiest day here for the nation of Israel. Once a year, all the sins of Israel were atoned for by a critically important ritual. The priest would take two goats, put his hands on them, confess the sins of Israel, symbolically placing the sins of the nation on them. One animal is killed as a sacrifice. Its blood is brought into the most holy place. Um, the second was the, what we call the scapegoat. And sin is placed upon him, and he is sent off into the wilderness away from Israel, away from the camp. So you've got a picture of these two goats, one that, that dies, that is sacrificial, and one that the sin is placed and it is sent away, symbolic of their sins going away from Israel. Um, these are explained in chapter 17 for, for as other sacrifices. These sacrifices are not Israel's efforts to appease an angry God. Rather, they're given by a gracious God who loves His people. He wants to show Israel just how serious and destructive their moral corruption really is, as well as just how much He wants to save them and restore their relationship. That's what atonement means, covering over someone's wrongdoing to restore the relationship. So, yeah, we look at it as law, um, you know, and a lot of people you know, kind of do see it as you know, God's holiness or God's anger with sin. But really what Leviticus is, when you, when you take back a lot of our preconceptions, it's God graciously, even though it's done by keeping laws, it's God graciously providing a way for His people to come into His presence. And, you know, while it is ancient in its, in its practice, uh, and while today if I was like, uh, you know, my office is welcome for you to come into, but you need to offer some cows before you, you know, come in my office, you know, that, that would be really weird to us. You know, nevertheless, this is how God provided for His ancient people. Even though we see it as law, even though we see it as, you know, barbaric, even though we see it as a lot of rules, and, but it's God providing a way for His people to come to Him. That's what the tabernacle was about. You know, so it, it's not a bad thing that we see here in Leviticus, even though we as, you know, Christians kind of stay away from it and keep our distance. And, you know, it's in the narrative story, it's how God is dwelling among His people. It's how God is allowing an opportunity for His people to fellowship with Him, you know, for His people and Moses and the priests to come into His presence, a way to atone for the sins of the people. So instead of God just striking them dead when they sin, you know, God provides a way to forgive them for their sin. So in that way, you know, Leviticus is about a gracious God that allows a way for God's people to come into His presence, and that is a good thing. Now, coming in through the new covenant, Jesus is a much better thing, and it's a much better way, uh, and God shows us even more, His more graciousness 
in what he did through Jesus Christ. But, you know, Leviticus is not this angry, fire-breathing God. It's a God that's providing a way that he can, you know, be with his people, that he can, you know, atone for their sins and bring forgiveness. And in that way, this book, even though it's a book of law, can even be a book about God's graciousness.